0: We're moving to Mexico in about two weeks. It's uh, been stressful, as one might imagine, intercontinental moves. Um, and of course, it is many times more complicated uh, moving with a family across the world than as an individual person. When I first came to Thailand, I didn't know I was moving here, but I came here on, one, on a one-way ticket, and everything I owned fit in a regular-sized backpack and a small carry-on. And now uh, returning to the Western Hemisphere, I'm coming back with, you know, many boxes of things, like way more than we could fit in our luggage. And, you know, of course, that's what happens with a family. But also, having been here almost five years, I've accumulated quite a bit of stuff. And uh, I've had to let go of a lot of things that I've been attached to, particularly my books. When I decided to to settle here, I started accumulating uh, an awesome physical book collection and I've sadly had to sell most of my books, and I gave away a lot to friends. There's a couple books that I am keeping, uh, mainly for sentimental reasons. And one of these books, I'm a little bit embarrassed to have. In fact, uh, a friend came over recently, and he, he picked up this book, and I couldn't help but feeling embarrassed uh, that he, he looked at it, and he gave me like a raised eyebrow. And the book is titled, The Science of Getting Rich. It's a new agey book. It was one of the books that contributed to the, was known as a New Thought Movement in the early 1900s, uh, along with Think and Grow Rich and As a Man Thinketh, and the general idea of visualizing what you want and having a positive mental attitude and manifesting your desires, right? That cringe word. And of course, it returned in uh, the, about 100 years later with the Law of Attraction Movement and the movie The Secret and whatnot. And Can't help being a little embarrassed because uh, it's very different from the other stuff I read, the other books I'm taking, books by Jung or dense history books or philosophy books that I'm more proud of having, (laughs) books that are a little bit more manly. But I have to take this book because this book has had a very profound effect on my life uh, many years ago, even though I don't read this kind of stuff anymore. I have to take it with me. It was the first book I read that entertained what we could call magical thinking. Kind of went against my uh, skeptical rationalism at, at the time, and that, it was actually a very beneficial thing for me back then. And I've been thinking about this more recently, like kind of returning to, say, more magical thinky perspectives lately, because in our move, we came across some logistical challenges That seemed to have no solution. Like there was, uh, there's nothing, there's no tangible action we could take to solve these problems. And then we kind of let go of attachment to even coming up with a solution, even though that meant like some pretty negative consequences if no solution were to, to come about. But then things just fell into place. It's almost like we, you know, we let go of the desire, we let go of attachment to outcome and some very coinc like beneficial coincidences happened that straightened everything out in the last week for us. And I can't help but think maybe, maybe something we did energetically with quotes around it or something we did with our mindset, you know, my wife and I kind of just reorganize the universe or allow the universe to deliver the solutions to our problems uh, quite quickly. So in this episode, I'm going to share an extended story with some, essentially what I, what I believe when it comes to this whole topic of manifestation. Uh, of course, I'm not saying it should be taken as literal truth, and I don't even know if there's anything beyond a coincidence when it comes to these things. But I do believe, wholeheartedly, that this kind of use of the mind is useful. Even, even if there's no magical or mystical effect to these things, it's useful for your own psychology, if only for creative problem solving. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, there is something to this whole manifestation thing. This is episode 158 on Manifestation. So first, I want to be clear. When I'm talking about magic, magic with quotes around it, what I mean is some action, some cause that has an effect where the relationship between cause and effect is not apparent, right? Like uh, if you go to the gym and you lift weights, and then over time, your muscle gets, muscles get bigger that's not magic, right? No one sees that as magic because you took a tangible action that is known to produce a certain effect and that effect happened, right? That, that makes sense. But if, say, you want a certain thing to happen or, or you know, a common thing that people experience, you th- you're thinking about someone and they randomly call you, or maybe you're hoping for a certain job opportunity where there's, where you have absolutely no leads and then someone out of the blue gives you uh, an opportunity for that. When something that coincidental happens, it's hard for even the most skeptical person to not entertain some, some level of magical thinking, some perhaps belief that the universe is a little bit more organized than it seems. Uh, or perhaps this is a simulation where the simulation, you know, they've, uh, the simulation makers have left some Easter eggs or some, uh, you know, some opportunities for, uh, Things that you want to happen, even though they don't make sense. Positive coincidences. And like I said, when I, when I came across this book, The Science of Getting Rich, I was definitely not a magical thinker, but I had a problem that seemed kind of magical in a negative sense, right? For me, it was my social anxiety. That was what plagued me all of my early years of life. And it felt like a magical problem. It felt like there was a, a spell cast on me because I didn't have control. Like that was the thing. And, in, you know, truthfully, and even, you know, skeptical will probably, a skeptic will look at, uh, you know, magical thinkers and be like, Oh, well, people entertain magical thinking when they don't have control. And that's, you know, that's kind of true across the board, right? If you can control an outcome, there's no reason to believe in, in magical things, right? People are drawn to mysticism you know, to fill in gaps. God fills in the gaps. And for me, my social anxiety seemed like a bad spell because it's not like I could just do things and have it go away. You know, for my friends who didn't understand why I was so shy or so quiet, or, you know, would like just freeze up in front of people or in front of girls or in front of guys, you know, they would always just say, just just talk more, just say what's on your mind. But there was nothing on my mind, right? Like it was like everything in my nervous system would shut down for reasons I couldn't understand, even though it was totally irrational. This would just happen. And it didn't seem like anything I could do made sense. And it's not like I didn't try, you know, I put myself in situations to challenge myself in in all sorts of forms socially. And it seemed to, it seemed to never have the positive effect. It was not like there was a tangible action I could take that would fix my problem. Seemingly, you know, I spent so much time reading psychology books to try to understand how the mind worked, but none of that rational understanding helps me overcome my shyness. And in fact, the one of the more extreme things I did uh, this was uh, my first year of college. Uh, I signed up for the Marines. Uh, I went to officer candidate school for the Marine Corps. It was a noncommittal program, uh, as most officer programs are. And I didn't go because I necessarily wanted to be a marine. I just thought if anyone in the world could help me get over my shyness, it was the Marine Corps, right? Because I had this perception that I just needed to be more tough and then I could talk to people, which is not really true. And actually, it turned out to not really be helpful in that sense, even though I'm glad I did that. I went through OCS, earned my lieutenant commission. That experience, even though I didn't serve, definitely, uh, definitely toughened me up in certain ways. It uh, definitely had a positive effect on me. But it did almost nothing for my shyness. I was still, I was, I, I was in fact probably more anxious leaving OCS than I was entering. Cause there, um, you're graded on three things. You're graded on academics, physical fitness, and leadership. Uh, I did really well on academic, uh, and fitness tests, but my leadership, you know, there, there was a certain level of, um, uh, outspokenness that was required. Uh, in the military that I just didn't have. And it just highlighted my flaws. And I remember, you know, that it was a two-summer program. I graduated from the first summer feeling proud of myself, but also feeling really down on myself because I was like, man, even the Marines, even the Marines couldn't make, you know, couldn't get help me get out of my shell. And I I remember, I, you know, right after graduation, I was waiting for my plane back up to, to New York for Quantico. And I, you know, I had some time to kill. I think I was waiting for the bus, actually, uh, on base. And I was in the commissary. There was like a book section, mostly warfighting manual type stuff, the commandant's reading list, other books that I've read. You know, very manly military books. And then very randomly, kind of just like how it is uh, in my book collection now, this, this anomaly of a book was there. I have no idea why it was there in the Marine Corps, uh, like the OCS uh, commissary. The Science of Getting Rich was there. They're just like sticking, they're just sitting there among all these warfighting manuals. I ended up reading it, I ended up reading The Back Flap, I think. And I don't know why, it was only, I mean, it was like five bucks, it was a very small book, but I, I felt like I had, to, I had to read it, right? It was, it was so different than everything else I read. Psychology books or, you know, other, other like heady stuff. It's all about you know, thinking positively and visualizing what you want. And if you follow this law, if you follow this so-called science of getting rich, the things you want will just appear in your life. The things you want will be attracted into your life. And the book was written about riches, which I didn't care about at the time, Uh, of course. But it seemed like, hey, maybe if I visualize things in the way that they prescribe in the book, if I have this positive mental attitude and this attitude of gratitude and all of these other, you know, new agey ideas, maybe I could get over my social anxiety too, right? Like basically, if it, a, if it can make guys in the early 1900s, you know, or actually, I think it was written during the depression, if it could help those guys supposedly come across riches from poverty, then it, it should help me be able to talk to people. So I read the whole book on the plane ride back up to New York, and I still had... A few weeks of summer left before college started again. And I started practicing these ideas. Uh, and I had a, a handful of um, coincidences that seemed to confirm everything in the book. You know, because at this point, uh, you know, I was so, I was, I was basically at my end of like, you know, I, I could not live the rest of my life anxious like that. And I had tried everything. I was like, all right, let me just try this. This magical thinking process. Let's see if I could attract my reality, and I started playing with it. And you know, one one coincidence that one occurrence that that uh, stands out in my memory was that about a week after getting back from OCS, um, I was called in for jury duty. Of course, extremely boring. And we spent the day doing I don't even remember what sitting in different rooms, filling out paperwork, blah blah blah. And we and we finally got to. Uh, towards the end of the day, we finally got to the selection room. I don't, I don't know if that's what it's called, but like where the lawyers start start selecting and disqualifying potential jurors. And, you know, it was towards the end of the day. And one of the guys was like, we're going to call you up randomly by lottery. And, um, you know, everyone else will have to come back tomorrow. I was like, shit! Like, I do not want to come back tomorrow. This is super, super annoying. In fact, I didn't want to be there like, another minute because I had been bored out of my mind. This is, of course, before smartphones. So I and I didn't bring a book. So I had just been sitting around twiddling my thumb, uh, twiddling my thumbs uh, all day. And I just decided, as like I guess he was a lawyer, uh, was about to call the first name randomly. I just decided I'm going to get called first and I'm going to get dismissed immediately. And that's what happened. (laughs) You know, I, again, could have been a coincidence, but like the thing that, you know, should be noted, and this is noted in all of these law of attraction, uh, you know, instructions, is that I believed that it was going to happen, and I wasn't really attached to it, and I wasn't craving it. I wasn't like longing for it. Like if I wasn't called, I wouldn't have thought much of it, right? It's not like I had bet money on it or like anything really was at stake other than my boredom. But it happened and it was like, and I remember <clears throat> when he called my name, because there's maybe 200 people in the room. So quite low probability of me being called. Uh, I remember feeling like kind of surprised, but kind of not surprised. Like somehow I was in the mindset where I, I, I believed it so much, but I believed it without attachment that I was going to get called that it kind of just happened. And, and I, I walked up there the The two lawyers, I guess it was the prosecutor and defendant uh, defending lawyer uh you know they asked me a couple questions <clears throat> i th- I think I remember mentioning that I had just gotten uh, you know out of o c s and I was going to be a marine officer, and somehow that got me dismissed immediately i don't i don 't even know what the, t- the case was about, but they did not want a military guy there, so I got dismissed and I was like oh that's cool and I played with some other things uh, that summer, and I started like playing with like bigger and bigger desires and there was one, uh, <laughs> I was still, uh, I still had a hardcore, I was still lo- I had a crush on my high school girlfriend who, uh, you know, had dumped me. Uh, and somehow, I, I also, I kind of used this process of like just deciding I was going to see her again and we we're going to go out on a date. Uh, and somehow that ha- also happened. And I was like, oh, cool. Like I could actually make things that, that really matter to me happen. But then at some point, like between, you know, her agreeing to meet up and seemingly being like flirtatious and like excited to see me until like we actually met something like I felt like I lost the magic, right? And I lost the magic specifically because I got so excited about seeing her and so excited that I somehow like will this thing into existence. It kind of feels like I lost the magic. I lost the magic by being too attached, like whatever mental state i was in when i you know made the made my uh name get called in the lottery that like you know i was, I was believing it without attachment so that i wasn't even surprised when it, this coincidence happened i definitely did not have that going on uh you know meeting up with my ex right i yeah i was like getting i swept up in fantasies about what would happen next maybe we get back together this and that all these things that i wanted these cravings these attachments and from there, it just didn't, nothing happened. Nothing happened that I wanted, right? It kind of just fizzled. Now, one uh, non-magical explanation from this is simply I went into simping mode to use modern day parlance. I was craving this outcome. I was too attached to this outcome. So, of course, I blew it. You know, relationally, we all have observed in some form, you know, when, you're, when one person wants the other a little bit too much out of proportion, it, it kind of is repulsive. That's that's one way to look at it. A related way to look at it is that desire and resistance typically cancel each other out. Or as desire increases, resistance also increases. I mean, this is an idea uh, that, you know, Stephen Pressfield talks about in The War of Art, which is why the greater your creative impulse, the greater your creative resistance, which is why a lot of people end up not expressing themselves, even though they have this voice inside of them. And for even more, you know, more on the 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 down the path of mysticism, this is idea from uh, Western occultism, uh, taken from the Gnostics, which is this idea that the more you desire something, or to the degree that you desire something, uh, that is also balanced out by resistance within you, which is why they they preach this uh, idea of gnosis with a G, gnosis. Uh, as a Gnostic, it means knowing. And it's the idea of being in a state of mind where you do have desires, but you're not attached to them such that resistance comes in to cancel, it, cancel itself out. right? In that Western occultism lens of things, it's like uh, most people can't manifest what they want because the more they want something, the more they cling to it, the more they crave it, the more their resistance goes up and that resistance cancels out their desire. For as much uh, manifestation energy they have, they have equal amount of anti-manifestation energy so that it just cancels out and they live a regular mundane life. And this idea of gnosis is getting into a state of mind where you don't trigger your own internal resistance so you can just have things come to you. Again, I'm not saying I believe in this explanation literally, but I do think there's something there because I, I go back to this uh, co- coincidental anecdote of willing my name to be called in the lottery and actually this whole thing with like low consequence lotteries there's actually been a bunch of other times where i've like won raffles and things i didn't really care about i just like decided i'm going to be like my name's going to be called and this has happened a bunch of times in my life i'm not going to list them all but like this has happened enough times that i (laughs) i can't even though it doesn't make sense to me i do believe that i have some ability or maybe all people have some ability to get their name called for lotteries that maybe they don't care about so much. So I've done an episode on this idea of gnosis before, I think a couple of years ago, but I want to go a little bit deeper into this idea of like actually how to get into this state, the state of non-attachment, but still having awareness and direction. So this idea of gnosis, this state of belief without attachment. I've wanted to find a a process that my rational mind can get behind, or at least follow step-by-step to get into this state. And there's many spiritual practices for doing this kind of thing, but my my recent uh, fascination with general semantics has pointed to me to uh, a more easy-to-follow step-by-step process, so I'm going to share them here. It's essentially because what what this is, is de-abstracting your desires into an experience of awareness where you can be focused on what you want without the resistance coming up. Because another another way to look at it, and I talked about this in the recent Slaying Your Demons episode, is that a lot of what weighs us down, what we could call our metaphorical demons, are abstractions in our mind that we've created that don't necessarily correspond to reality, but they give us a sense of resistance. So in a totally non-magical lens, like this is where you know, resistance to creativity comes from, like maybe fear of judgment or whatever, maybe fear of expression in a regular social situation or fear of taking a leap or whatever, whatever demons like, you know, cloud someone's mind. They're almost always something that is not real. It's a, a demon in the sense that it's in your mind only, only you can perceive it, but it does have an effect on your real reality. So this, this process of being free of that weight and getting to a state of belief and knowing and trust without attachment, because the thing with attachment is the other side of it. Attachment, you know, like really craving an outcome, being lost in a certain fantasy is also an abstraction. It might seem like a positive abstraction, but if we follow what Western occultism uh, believes, which I think points to maybe something a lot more real and irrational from a psychological lens is when you get lost in these abstractions, be they negative abstractions that we could call demons or Pos- seemingly positive abstractions like fantasies and delusions—they both put us in this realm that detaches us from reality, and they make us end. Up, they end up making us feel bad because, to the degree that one has these positive delusions of grandeur, is usually the degree that they also have demons of uh, disillusionment. Right? It's essentially, in a sense, the creative manic depressive cycle. So I put together four simple steps of deabstraction that I try to remind myself. I've been trying to I've been playing with this every day just to get myself out of this unnecessarily abstract state where resistance becomes high and creative potential becomes low and per I you know creativity we can say in the normal artistic sense or perhaps in manifesting one's reality. And the first step would be to verbalize a certain desire or goal. I mean this is what every uh Every goal setting type person starts with, you have to write out your goal, right? You know, some people turn these into affirmations where you repeat to yourself over and over, I have such and such, or this, you know, you, you speak to yourself as if it's there. I think most people find that this is not particularly useful and it feels kind of fake when you're just saying these words to yourself of something that is not real. Can it work for some people? Yeah, But I think it's because they are unconsciously following the steps that come afterwards. Because when you verbalize a goal, when you verbalize anything, as we covered in the semantics episode, you are putting it into an extremely abstract state where now words, which are symbols, are meant to represent an experience. They're, They're quite a few degrees away from the actual experience. So if actually, if you're trying to follow along this process right now, I'd say right now while you're listening verbalize to yourself some goal, some desire that you have. And I would say even just for fun, pick something that seems to be outside of your control. Not not something where you have a a tangible action you can take that will obviously get the goal. Like, I want to be in better shape. I could go to the gym. No, no. Pick something that seems like a little bit beyond your reach. Something that would require some level of coincidence. And I'd also say pick something selfish. The reason being is that Especially when we're verbalizing goals or you know I've been in many of these types of workshops where people share their goals with a group, people tend to say things that are overly altruistic because they want to sound good, and even when people write these goals to themselves, I believe people sometimes are overly altruistic because they want to sound good to themselves, and that takes that that, that is also you know it, it takes you away from the truth of what you're experiencing so I would actually Pick something selfish, maybe even pick something taboo, like something so selfish, you maybe wouldn't want other people to hear it. Step two is then to translate this goal or desire that you verbalize to yourself into a a pre-verbal image. So this is essentially what Korzebski said about returning to the unspeakable level, right? Because once an idea, an experience is turned into words, it's abstract. We're trying to de-abstract it. And so the next level of less abstraction would be to have a visual image. And I think this is what uh, you know the law of attraction, positive thinking world, the new thought world, let's say, uh, where they came up with this idea of visualizing, right? It's one thing to write out of the goal, I have a million dollars. It's another thing to visualize the image of it, right? It's a little bit closer to real. It's more like watching the movie than reading the book. And just by turning it into an image... You're actually practicing, doing what Korzybski would call silent practice. It's a a method of moving towards sanity by not getting lost in words, by thinking, but not with words. You're thinking in images now. But even an image is also an abstraction. Uh, It's not as abstract as the word, but it is still a symbolic representation. And actually, when I did the episode uh, on boyhood wounds uh, a couple months ago, a couple listeners reached out to me. I think quite a few uh, men live in fantasy and delusion, so that it, it uh, rang some it resonated with a few people. And even that, you know, if, if you're one of these people who've gotten lost in fantasy about whatever, about uh, a girl you like, or some sort of other delusion of grandeur, then you maybe know that even the image is not so real, right? It's still it's an abstract representation, and you know when someone gets deluded, or goes through like this uh, manic-depressive cycle where in the mania they're, they're attaching themselves to these fantasy outcomes of the future. There is like a, a, a correction cycle where you get kind of depressed and maybe the demons rise to, to cancel out the, the abstract desire. So the, the third step would be to even de-abstract the image, which is to translate and say, you know, we went from the verbal, the verbalized desire. Step two would be to translate that verbalized desire into a pre-verbal image. Step three is to go to a pre-visual feeling, right? So, you know, some, some people identify this as like, focus on how you want to feel rather than the goal, right? You can start with the goal, start with the written goal, start with the image of the goal, but then translate into the feeling. To focus on this pre-visual feeling, forces you to get out of your head, right? The, the goal and the image may, may, may be all in your head, but just to focus on the feeling that attaches to it forces you into your body, right? It forces you to pay attention to the emotions that would be associated with the image. And that actually is probably the best starting point. Like you think about the image, you notice what emotions come up, and then you try to let go of the image and keep the emotions. If this seems difficult uh, or, you know, particularly abstract, it, just consider any time, and I think this happens a lot. I mean, this, ha- this happens to me, and uh, especially you know, perusing the internet. Sometimes I'll see something. Maybe I'll, I'll catch a headline, and it'll make me feel a certain way. But then I'll, I'll scroll on to the next thing, and I'll still feel the negative emotion. And then, I'll, even though I, I kind of forgot what it was about, like, like something made me upset, and I don't really even remember what it was about. And then the opposite happens too. Like I'll think of something positive and then I'll forget what I was thinking about but I'll still feel good and I don't remember why. I'm sure you've had this experience. This is essentially what we're trying to do but consciously. Right? You have this image, it's making you feel a certain way, something positive and expansive probably, and you are trying to let go of the image and just hold on to the feeling, which usually comes down to then focusing on sensations, like the even even less abstract than emotions are the physical sensations you feel in your body. You know, a lack of contraction in your Torso, maybe, or tingliness and warmth because everything is essentially relaxed and not tense. And again, even if none of this, you know, mystical lens uh, has any validity, just this practice in itself will make you feel good, right? Like you're, you're certainly not thinking uh, negatively or, or being in a tense state when you take on this practice. But there's one more step. And that final step is to go even deeper than that or even de-abstract that even further and focus on the pre-feeling awareness. So you're going even deeper than the emotions, even deeper than like awareness of sensation to just awareness. And I don't know if I can explain this better than that. But if you've ever been in the zone, say in sports, or I know I, I recall the experience of like (laughs) <laughs> with the the totally inco- inconsequential jury duty experience of knowing something was going to happen, believing it, and, and you know, like, to that level of awareness is a state that at least I I've been trying to live in. Right? I was just thinking like if I could be that in tune with things where I believed that things were going to work out so well, like I, to, to such a high degree that I'm not even surprised when a coincidence happens or a lucky break happens. That's just a nice state to live in. And I think a lot of uh, mystical schools of thought, you know, they try different ways of getting to this state, right? Like um, in Western occultism, there is a practice of using sigils, which are basically abstract symbols that are supposed to represent some sort of desire. And and the idea behind this is the same thing that we're talking about here: is like if you were to write out your desire, especially something you're very attached to an equal amount of resistance will come up because it's all happening on the conscious plane, on the abstract abstraction level of consciousness. Whereas something like a sigil, some set of squiggly lines or something, can ideally evoke a certain feeling and awareness that doesn't bring up the abstract image so that your resistance doesn't come up. At least that's the idea from my understanding. But even the sigil and... Any symbol, any spiritual symbol, in my opinion, is meant to evoke this experience. It's kind of just like a surrogate for this experience of entering a level of awareness where you, you're aware of your desire and the things that would be pleasurable, but you're not even, you're, you're not even thinking of it in your head. Like you just know it's going to happen, but you don't even attach yourself to what it is, which perhaps is a, complicated way of saying set it and forget it decide what you want and then take it out of your mind so that your attachment doesn't increase resistance now i've been i've been playing with this recently because as i mentioned earlier there there's some logistical challenges we've had with our intercontinental move uh things that seem to have no solution when we were planning on staying in thailand longer we decided to start this uh Aphrodisiac soft drink business. So we ordered uh, many kilos of herbs, actually from South America uh, to Thailand. It was very difficult getting in the country; it was kind of expensive. And since we're leaving now, we have like all of this raw material that we're obviously not going to take back to Mexico. And it was this very random thing, you know, like how could we sell this? Like who's going to buy this? Like ten kilos of this kind of obscure herb. And uh, you know, we've asked around, but like. We we really had low hopes of success, you know, and it, it wasn't like it was a big, like emotional thing. it was just like, it would be kind of a waste of money and a waste of a good product to not sell it to someone. And then very randomly, Nalaya met this woman who owns a cacao shop, just opened a, a chocolate shop close to us. And she said that the night before they met, she was hoping, she, she, you know, she's a spiritual person. She asked the universe to send her some way of getting this particular herb. Right, It's this extremely, extremely low probability coincidence that seemed to happen. Like she essentially was trying to manifest us while we were manifesting her back, which is just a fun idea. Coincidence, very beneficial coincidence, perhaps. What both parties were doing in this situation was essentially having this desire and letting go of attachment, you know, not focusing on it to the degree that resistance increased. It was kind of like, at least on our end, we were kind of like in a state of trust, like a detached trust. We were like, we decided to stop worrying about this thing and just hope that it figured itself out. And of course, this was kind of a, a thing of low consequence. So maybe it was easy to get into that state. But the other thing, which was not so easy uh, and much more emotional, is that due to COVID restrictions and, and some other factors too, we can't bring our dogs to Mexico. So for the last three months, this has actually been the thing that's been most stressful for me is trying to find them a new good home, right? Cause we weren't going to let them out on the street. We weren't going to put them in a shelter. Like that would be terrible. And yeah, I really wanted to find them a good home, but this is another one of these things where it didn't seem like there was anything we could do because Thailand especially has such an overpopulation of dogs issue of stray dogs. It's like finding a home for two adult dogs, seemed impossible and we've tried everything for three months and we finally decided to just let go even though it's basically down to the wire and which meant uh you know our, our plan b was something very uh very unpleasant uh but we let go we kind of just trusted okay <laughs> we, we said K many times like whatever happens happens and then funny enough this week I reconnected with an acquaintance who happens to be uh, starting a farm for orphans and they actually wanted animals. They actually were looking for nice domesticated dogs to be on the property and hang out with the kids. And it was another one of these like, I could not help but feel like this spiritual moment of like, thank you universe for like coming up with a solution that seemed impossible. And it came at a time where we had basically let go of attachment to outcome And just been in this state of like, okay, just trust that it's going to happen. And, you know, when it came through is reminiscent of this feeling of, of being in the, in the, in the jury duty situation where, you know, I, I was kind of just trusting something that I wanted would happen, even though it was harder with this because, you know, the stakes were actually high and it happened. And it was almost not surprising when it finally happened. So this is what I believe to some degree. Believe with quotes. This is the belief set that I entertain uh, when it comes to manifesting your reality. I'll say the caveat one last time. I, I don't necessarily literally think this process... Right? I don't like, I for sure believe that this process manifests whatever you want. I'm not going to create some product that tells you how to manifest your six-figure, whatever, or any of that nonsense. But this is a process that helps me get into a mental state that I believe does seem to have some positive effect on reality, especially in situations that we can say, call for magic in quotes, situations where there is not a clear, tangible action you can take to affect an outcome, and you kind of have to lean on forces that are not so material. Uh, and that is essentially this process, this four-step process I mentioned earlier of getting into the state of gnosis or non-attached, non-abstract awareness where you're for sure not thinking in words, you're not even thinking in images, you're not even thinking in feelings, but you're getting to a state of awareness that is beneath all of those things but still corresponds to the desire that you want. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I I'm always a little bit unsure about like the, the magical thinking episodes, the, the mystical episodes, how people take them. And actually, I'm on, I'm back on Instagram. Seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, if you would listen to this, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, actually. Um, I don't know how much more of this type of content I will be making. And I, I've actually been mostly focused on my, my history substack with a new episode coming out, hopefully in the next two weeks. That's at historyofman.substack.com. Love to connect and hear from you. And of course, if you know someone who would like this episode, please share it their way. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.